Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Numbers. The book of Numbers, Numbers 25. We're continuing this series we've been on called Five on Five, where we're looking at five lessons on each of the first five books of the Bible. And today we're in the book of Numbers, week number four. The sermon is entitled, A Lesson in God's Jealousy. Um, I do want to thank the wonderful uh, preachers who we've had this summer, uh, four different opportunities, three of them being from our very own pastoral interns, uh, to hear God's word preached through them. Uh, to give you a heads up, I'll be in the pulpit now for uh, the next several months. Uh, they gave me enough break and they said, oh, we're not covering for you anymore. Uh, so I'll be in the pulpit. I'll finish off numbers, do all five in Deuteronomy, and then introduce our next series at the end of September going into the fall, uh, which I'll introduce when we get there. Um, But we're in Numbers 25 today, reading verses 1 to 15. And so at this time, if you're able, please stand with me. Uh, Why do we stand? Standing is an act of worship. It shows reverence for God, respect for God as we read and receive his word. Uh, Numbers 25, verses 1 to 15. Hear now God's word. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Dear friends, pray with me. God, we ask your help and your blessing because we admit there are parts of Scripture that are easier to understand and easier to apply, and there are parts that are more confusing. And because of the cultural difference, the chronological difference, sometimes we don't quite understand. So we ask for your help, O Holy Spirit, to take the words here in Numbers 25, your words, and speak them into our hearts that we might hear from you and respond as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, The English theologian J.I. Packer wrote a very well-known book called Knowing God. And in that book, he writes a chapter on this attribute of God called 
the jealousy of God. And I want to read for you what J.I. Packer writes in that section. He writes this, the jealous God, doesn't it sound offensive? For we know jealousy, the green-eyed monster as a vice, one of the most cancerous and soul-destroying vices that there is. Whereas God, we are sure, is perfectly good. How then could anyone ever imagine that jealousy is found in him? Now, isn't that true? The, the reality is that we can't help but hear the word jealousy and read into it all of the negative things we understand it to mean. Uh, I think we can all agree that seeing and finding jealousy in ourselves is quite disturbing. Admitting to jealousy when we feel it is kind of hard. Seeing jealousy in another person is very unattractive. And so how do we square with this, make sense of it when the Bible tells us that God is jealous? In fact, it's not only the Bible telling us God's jealous, but God himself telling us he's jealous. Exodus 34, God himself says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now, our story today in Numbers 25 gives us some clarifying thoughts on this question. And we need to begin here. When the scriptures speak of God's jealousy, we shouldn't read into it all of the nasty negative connotations uh, that arise from our own experience of jealousy, arise from our own emotions of jealousy. Rather, we need to understand jealousy as God defines it. Jealousy is God's holy and perfect desire for the unwavering commitment and faithfulness of his people. And if you understand jealousy in that way, it's God's holy and perfect desire for the unwavering faithfulness and commitment of his people, then God's jealousy is never evil. It's always good. God's jealousy is never wrong. It's always right. Here's our point of meditation today. What I want us to sort of think through as we go on through the sermon. When you understand God's jealousy as Phineas did, you become jealous for God as Phineas was. So we need to understand God's jealousy as Phineas did, and then we'll understand how we become jealous for God as Phineas was. Now, let's get into it. Uh, Numbers 25 is not a Bible story uh, that Christian, you know, are going to make movies on. You're not going to find the story of Israel and Shittim whoring with the daughters of Moab on, uh, on GodTube or uh, Pure Flix. You're just not going to find a Christian movie based on this theme. I mean, it begins describing this outrageous event. Verse one, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now that verse should not just be offensive because of what we read, but if you actually consider the context, the author is actually helping you feel the weight of what they did. We're reading Numbers 25, but uh, actually in Numbers 22 to 24, it's a three-chapter series, uh, three-chapter story about this prophet named Balaam who is hired by a king named Balak in order to curse Israel. And so Balaam is hired to curse Israel, but every time he goes to open his mouth to utter a curse, blessings keep coming out. And what we actually see is that God is so relentlessly committed to blessing Israel that every human cunning and plan cannot undo God's plan. And so it actually shows the severity because what you get here is this, uh, Numbers 22 to 24, God blesses his people countless times. God is resolutely faithful to Israel. And then in the very next chapter, the people begin whoring with the daughters of Moab. The people are rebelliously faithless against the Lord. And the faithlessness is shown in their sexual immorality. They chase after foreign women that God said is off limits. 
Well, the story actually doesn't focus too much on the sexual immorality. It actually goes to much greater and graver sin. And that's the sin of their idolatry. Because in the very next verse, we read in verses two and three, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Now that word yoke doesn't appear many times in uh, the Old Testament. It appears three times, that Hebrew word, and it means something like covenanted. And if you know covenants in the Old Testament is a language of marriage. You know, marriage is a covenant. And the verse is saying that although God covenanted to Israel, showed faithful commitment to Israel, Israel is covenanting with Baal. Basically, Israel is cheating on Yahweh with this foreign false god. It's like on the weekdays, Israel is letting Yahweh pick her up from work and buy her dinner and drop her off. But on the weekend, she's spending all of her time with Baal. And that's what it means to say Israel yoked himself to Baal. Now, it's really interesting that the people's offense is described in this way because on the one hand, I think generally most of us understand sin is disobedience. Um, their sin involved breaking the first commandment. You know the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And so this is how we understand sin. Sin is this kind of offense. It's breaking a law. It's a transgression. It's a crime. But Numbers 25 is actually showing us something a little different. It's teaching us that sin is far more than just breaking a rule. That sin is not just an infraction, but it's infidelity. Idolatry is actually spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to the covenant with God. Now pause and think about that. Sin and its consequences should not just be understood legally, but they need to be understood relationally. This is what makes sin egregious and heinous. Because on the other side of an offense, it's not an abstract law. On the other side of your offense is a person. It's a face. It's a promise. And we know this is true because the response of God to their sin is jealousy. God says in verse 11, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Jealousy was God's response. Now, here's the thing. Here's what we need to clarify. Jealousy, as you and I feel it, as you and I experience it and deal with it, jealousy often arises out of deep insecurity, doesn't it? You meet somebody who is smarter than you, and you feel jealous because now you're worried that people may not admire you for your great intellect. You meet somebody who is more successful than you, and then all of a sudden you feel jealous because now you're worried that your accomplishments aren't as significant as compared to theirs. You meet somebody who's more beautiful than you, and you feel jealous because you think, well, compared to them, I may be ugly. Jealousy, as we experience this, arises out of insecurity. And that's our problem when we think, oh, God is jealous. Oh, what an insecure kind of God. But friends, God's jealousy does not arise from insecurity. God's jealousy arises out of his love. In fact, God's jealousy is an expression of his love. Think about it with me. Many of us are okay that God is a God of love. We, we want God to be an all-loving God. And yet we fail to understand that true love involves 
an intolerance against wayward affections. True love involves an intolerance against flaky commitment. True love will not stay still and silent when the person you're loving is being wooed by another. True love will not stay still and silent when the person you love is chasing after another. Wouldn't you all question the love of a husband who saw his wife flirting with another man and yet felt no emotion inside of him? Wouldn't you be suspicious of a wife who heard, we saw your husband on a date with another woman and she didn't bat an eye? You see, in these kinds of circumstances, righteous jealousy would be an expression of faithful love. Because on the flip side, casual indifference would be a sign of fading love. The point is that if God is not jealous when Israel bows down and sacrifices to foreign idols, how can we say that God truly loves his people? It's because God loves his people. It's because God has secured them, saved them, redeemed them, purchased them, blessed them, that he gets angry and jealous when he sees them chasing after infested waters and running after enslaving masters. Actually, in fact, that's precisely why God gets jealous because he loves you so much that when he sees you pursuing after idols, pining after these cheap, false, fake God substitutes that he knows will leave you empty and broken and unfulfilled and unsatisfied. God's jealous response to sin reveals that the sin that we commit of idolatry is far more personal than we may have realized. I think you grew up in the church. You, you've, or you've been around enough Christians. You've heard some Bible studies. You just assume, oh, I understand sin. Sin is um, a legal matter. Sin is breaking a rule. Sin is failure to keep a law. And I think the problem is when all, all, many of us have that, uh, a kind of simplistic understanding of sin, you know what happens when you're confronted with your sin? You won't be quick to repent because repentance is personal. saying sorry to a person. What are you more quicker to do? You try to amend the wrong. You try to fix the problem. You try to make up for what you've done. Our instincts when confronted with sin is we try to do better and we try to work harder. But God is not jealous because you and I broke a law. He's jealous because in our sin and idolatry, we've committed spiritual adultery. We've taken God's covenantal commitment and we spit on it and we've stomped on it. So God is righteously jealous when he sees you seeking after something else instead of him. When he sees you putting some love above him, when he sees you putting some master before him. You know, if sin is simply about your deeds and your misdeeds, then some of you will perpetually feel religious and righteous. You know why? Because this past week, I managed to stay away from sin. I've managed to not do bad things. I've managed to not do something that people would look down upon. And so you may feel pretty religious, pretty righteous. But let me ask you a question. Not about whether you've broken our law or not, but let me ask you this question. Is there anything at any time this week that you put before God in your thoughts, in your affections, in your longing? and in your love. Do you have an idolatry issue? Well, let me ask you a few questions. When left alone, totally undisturbed, where do your thoughts naturally drift to? The things you daydream about or fantasize about, the world you wish would be, the places you wish you were, 
where do they take you? What are the things you're pursuing because you believe that if you have this, then things will be okay? What are the outcomes you're hoping in because you believe if we finally arrive here, if I receive this news, then everything will be better? Or maybe put the other way, what are the things that really discourage you or change your mood from gladness in one moment to sadness or even madness the next? Could it be that that's your idol? You see, here's the reality. You read a story like this and you're like, well, we're not bowing down to Baal of pure, but aren't you longing after some kind of idol? Aren't you putting something else before the Lord? Aren't you yoking yourself to some kind of cheap God substitute? And this incurs the jealous love of God who wants you and your heart holy for himself. For some of you, this is still too abstract. I'll try to get a little more concrete. Did any of you feel stressed out this week? And if you did, did any of you reach for some junk food or a tub of ice cream because you find more comfort in that than turning to God with your burdens? If any of you, were any of you angry and impatient this week? Did you throw yourself at some task to calm your heart down, to walk away from something rather than actually running to God and repenting? Were any of you worried or anxious this week? Did you grab your phone or turn on the television because you'd rather numb your mind instead of praying to God and surrendering control to him? Did any of you feel a bit of unhappiness or loneliness or unfulfillment? Did you go online shopping or chase after some cheap thrill for the moment rather than looking to God as your ultimate satisfaction? What are these? These are examples of the way that we yoke ourselves in our heart to some idol and therefore commit spiritual adultery. I don't know, I've been praying for this, but perhaps the Holy Spirit this week has been prickling your heart. Perhaps he's doing it this very moment, exposing, showing us what those very idols are. Those things that you're living for, pursuing, chasing, trusting and hoping and looking to save you. What are those things? Those things that you believe will give you meaning or significance or identity or validation or purpose or value or worth. Repentance. Holy Spirit wrought repentance happens when you realize that that the Lord is jealous for me and my affections because he loves me. And yet my zeal is so misguided and so misdirected and we're chasing things that cannot and will not love us in return. If you're like Israel living in Shittim and you've yoked yourself to something other than God, what can you do? The choices for Israel weren't many because the news for Israel was only bad. Israel had no choice. Israel sinned, and we read in verse 3, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And that anger looked a certain way. Verses 4 and 5 tell us the grave consequences. People were hanged in the sun. They were killed for their sin. And we read that, and we're like, that's a bleak picture, because if I admit that I have an adulterous, idolatrous heart, then is this not the fate awaiting me? To which God, therefore, says, dear friends, 
for those of you who are in Jesus, the bad news is not bad news anymore. Because in the gospel, there is an invitation. In Acts, we read, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance, turning away from idols, looking again to God is what God calls you to do because his anger has been assuaged and his wrath has been rerouted. You see a glimpse of it in our picture, which is a glorious, beautiful picture. In verse 11, here's what we read. Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. What do we read here? God's wrath is turned away from his people because there was a priest who mediated between God and man, between God and the guilty. And what did Phineas do? How did Phineas turn the wrath back? He enacted justice. Because what we read is that there was this man, this man had no sense, Zimri, the Israelite who brings a Midianite woman into the camp and Phineas in jealousy for God will not let the camp be defiled. And we read in verses seven and eight, he rose, left the congregation, took a spear, went after the man of Israel into the chamber, pierced them both, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. All of that, that whole scene, it's summarized in verse 13. What did Phineas do? Phineas made atonement for the people of Israel. Why does Moses record this story? In the book of Numbers, why is this story written in here? Because God is giving Israel a preview of a greater priest who would make a greater atonement for our sins. You and I, dear friends, we are an idolatrous, adulterous people. We are guilty in all of our ways, just as Zimri was just as the Midianite woman was. And we should have been judged. The anger of God should have been kindled against us. Wrath should have been poured out. But instead of sending judgment, God has sent us Jesus. In his love for you and me, God sent a better priest to make a better atonement for the guilty. What do we see in the story? In the story, the innocent pierced the guilty and the wrath was diverted. But in the gospel, we see the guilty piercing the innocent, thus turning away the wrath of God. Jesus stood in the place of the adulterer. Jesus stood in the place of the idolater. Jesus stood in the place of the guilty. All that means, dear friends, is that Jesus stood in your place. And they're taking the cross for you. The faithful, undefiled priest was pierced for our unfaithfulness, our unwavering, flaky commitment so that we might be forgiven, restored, and renewed. See, the book of Numbers is telling you that the blood of the guilty was shed so that God's wrath would be turned away. But the gospel, the good news says the blood of the innocent lamb was shed. And the promise comes to us in Romans 5, 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
the jealous love of God on display for you in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so through what he's done, not only is forgiveness offered, hallelujah, praise God, that is good news, but through what Jesus has done, freedom is now offered. But the yoke of slavery, the yoke to our idols and enslaving masters are broken. Because seeing the beauty of God's jealous love for you and for me actually transforms our hearts. So now we become zealous and jealous for God. And this is exactly what we see Lord, the Lord commending Phineas for. He says in verses 12 and 13, Therefore say, Behold, this is God speaking, I give to Phineas my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Why? Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. How was Phineas jealous for God? You know how? Phineas's jealousy looked like this. He resisted and stood against the idolatry that everybody else caved into. Phineas chose God over the foreign deities. He chose God over a veil of pure. So what must our jealousy for God look like choosing him over the idolatries of our hearts and of our age? To resist the things that we see the world giving themselves over to. Because our modern idolatries, frankly, none of you have little statutes in your room that you worship, or I assume many of you don't. But what do our idolatries look like? Well, they vary because we can make anything God substitutes. I want to highlight just three, three particular struggles. First, for some of you, being jealous for God may mean prioritizing God over the idolatry of your family and your children. Some of you aren't married and you don't have family, you don't have children, but listen to this because it's the idolatry of our age. What would it look like to resist the idolatry of putting your family and your kids first above everything else and instead rightly placing them under and after God, making it clear that God is the priority in this household? What might you need to say no to your family for in order that you might say yes to God? Here's a second example. For some of you, being jealous for God may mean honoring God over the idolatries of comfort and leisure. Do you always seem to be making time for recreation and fun and yet find it impossible to find time to spend with God or his people? What would it look like to resist the idolatry of comfort and leisure by putting God first, because in obedience to him, you are actually making sacrifices and entering into discomfort and inviting in some inconvenience in your life. What might you need to give up? What might you need to enter so that God would come first? And here's a third one. For some of you, being jealous for God may mean trusting him more than the idolatry of trusting in money or financial security. Do your thoughts drift to how you can serve God with money? Or do your thoughts drift and obsess over how much you make and how to make more, secure more, and save more? What would it look like to resist the idolatry of money by living less dependent on the toys and trinkets of this world 
to look forward to the treasures in heaven where rust will not get to it and no thief can take it? What might you need to be generous in so that money is not your master, but God alone is? Of course, the various modern idolatries are numerous. Your self-image, your looks, and your beauty is one. For others of you, maybe it's romance and the promise of love. For some of you, it's just significance and status through power, position, and prestige. But whatever modern idolatries our hearts struggle with, in Christ, there's not only forgiveness for them, there is freedom from them. And when we experience the power of the gospel at work in our hearts, and we see his jealous love for us on display in the sacrifice of Jesus, our hearts become zealous and jealous for God and God alone. Let's pray.